Let's give a nice, warm Young Adults welcome to Pastor Dan Shields. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Jonah. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here tonight. My name is Dan Shields. I'm one of the Merrill Campus pastors. Excited to be with you uh, tonight. And uh, I just had to tell you, though, although we were just talking about NCAA brackets and all that stuff, I, I do enjoy sports, but I wouldn't say that I'm the biggest sports fan out there. I definitely like to watch certain teams. I definitely appreciate at certain times of the season watching different uh, sports and different activities like that. Uh, however, uh, there was a certain sports story that really grabbed my attention recently, and it has to do with college football and it had to be one of the biggest blowouts in college football history. It was on October 7th, 1916 in the state of Georgia. There were the two teams. It was the Georgia Tech football team versus this team from Tennessee, Cumberland College. And it was these two teams that were pitted against each other. Georgia Tech was known as like the powerhouse team in all of the nation at the time. But Cumberland College was, was definitely not that. It actually, Cumberland College's uh, football team had actually completely dissolved earlier that year in 1916, but they had a deal, a negotiation that they had to fulfill to play Georgia Tech. And so Georgia Tech said, hey, you're going to be out thousands of dollars if you don't come and play us. You have to come and play us. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was some sort of a Cinderella story that underdog overcomes like the big mountain team, but that is absolutely not what happened. The final score of that game was 222 to zero. I think we maybe have a picture of the actual scoreboard. That was a real scoreboard, real game. That is absolutely uh, a whip in there. That is not so good for a team. There was no mercy shown to the Cumberland players on that day. Now, try to put yourself in the shoes of the Cumberland College football team. How would they have felt after getting defeated so handily? Now, maybe they kind of were trying to like, all right, guys, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can be that underdog. Maybe we can kind of strategize some different things and kind of come out on top. Or maybe they had like a really good fan base that would kind of encourage them and kind of cheer them along the way. And maybe they thought we can show Georgia Tech what's up. But obviously that isn't what happened. The only victory, if you can call it that, in the entire game is that they blocked one extra point from an uh, uh, extra point attempt. And the way that they did it was they made a pyramid, they put one guy on the top and they blocked it with his face. <laughs> and he actually is, you know, you laugh at it, he actually got a severe facial injury uh, from that. And so they, at least they didn't lose 223 to zero. And that was the Cumberland College victory that day. But Georgia Tech showed zero mercy to their opponents, zero mercy. But in our text today, we really see very clearly that God, our God, is one who does show great grace, magnificent mercy to sometimes people that we would never anticipate. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to the book of Jonah. We're in the book of Jonah in this minor prophets series that we are in. And as you turn there, let me just set up just a little bit of the context. 
We don't know a lot about the person of Jonah, honestly, uh, but we do know that Jonah was the son of Amittai, that he was from this place called Gath Hefer, which was kind of northeast of Nazareth, and that he was a prophet. He was a spokesperson for God, and it was during the reign of King Jeroboam of Israel, uh, kind of in the mid-8th century or so. But besides that, what we kind of see from the book of Jonah is that Jonah has the kind of character that you don't necessarily want yourself to be filled with. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Jonah are four different scenes, four different scenes that are going to kind of unpack the overarching story of Jonah. And in each of these scenes, what we're going to see is one different kind of uh, principle that we can pull out into our own lives. So here's the four scenes. First off, Jonah runs and God pursues. Then Jonah prays and God rescues. Then Jonah preaches and God shows mercy. And then finally Jonah gets angry and then God gives a challenge. And so let's look at scene one together. Jonah runs and God pursues. Look at Jonah chapter one, verses one to three. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. If you can say Tarshish 10 times fast, I'll give you a free coffee or something. It's a ridiculous word. All right, so here we got Jonah initially in the beginning of the story. Here's what we first see. We see that God is giving Jonah this super short, simple, clear command. Go to Nineveh, declare to them that their evil ways are seen by me. What do we know about Nineveh? What do we know about this city? Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Sam talk about the book of Nahum and the people of Nineveh. And he described them a little bit. Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian kingdom and they were really known as enemies of Israel. They were known for their dominance in war, for their severe brutality. They were known for humiliating people in public and torturing people regularly that were their enemies. The Ninevites were experts at these things. And so you really didn't want to be a, uh, in, an enemy of a Ninevite. And if you already were, like you were with the Israelites, the Israelites and the Ninevites were these enemies, you really saw each other in pretty, pretty negative terms. More than likely, this is how Jonah would have thought of the people of Nineveh. You don't hang out with Ninevites. You don't text them. You don't go on a Zoom call with them. You don't go play disc golf with them. You don't do any of that. You want to avoid them or you want to destroy them. That's how an Israelite would view these Ninevites. In the book of Nahum, it's important to kind of understand as well a little bit of our timeline. As Sam taught last week, the book of Nahum was written around 620 B.C., and it was focused in on, though, the people of Nineveh. But what we have here in the book of Jonah is about over 100 years before Nahum taught to the people of Nineveh, Jonah did the same thing. So we have different prophets. We have Jonah, we have Nahum. We have the same people, 
we have the Ninevites and we have the understanding that God sees their evil and he's calling them out on it. But what's Jonah's response? What does Jonah do to this crystal clear command? God said to arise and go, but Jonah arose and he fled. He, he took off. He completely disobeyed God's word to him. Not only did Jonah not obey God, but he actually went in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh to Tarshish. Some people think that is about 2,000 miles in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. So Nineveh was about 600 miles away from Jonah, currently was residing at the time of this word of the Lord. And so just think about that. God gave him this word and Jonah, instead of working hard to do what God commanded him to do, he worked extra hard to have to skirt around God's command and go in the opposite direction. Notice how the text also says that Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. If we look at verse five, it says that he was down in the inner part of the ship and he laid down. There's this kind of picture that we're getting from scripture that Jonah was just on this downward spiral of disobedience again and again and again. And as Jonah is on his getaway ship to Tarshish, verse four says that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And so Jonah, including the sailors on the boat, they are in the midst of a dicey situation. These pagan sailors are trying to figure out how to survive this storm by any means necessary. They're tossing over their cargo. They're calling out to their false gods. They're doing anything that they can and eventually find out that the whole time it was Jonah's fault. It was Jonah's fault the entire time. And verse 12 says this. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up. This is Jonah speaking to the sailors. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And so Jonah would rather be thrown into the ocean and die rather than fulfill his call from the Lord. He wants to just be done. He just wants to not follow God at all. He's like, it's better if I just don't do this anymore. And I think at times we can go through great lengths, maybe in our own lives. I know I can probably look back at seasons in my life where I could have just done what God wanted me to do, but instead I make up all the excuses that I can to try to get around doing God's word rather than being blessed by doing God's word and following his call on my life. But Jonah continues to run and run and there's discipline and there's hardship, not just on Jonah, but on the people around him. But while Jonah is kind of heading to the hills away from God's word, God is still grabbing Jonah's attention. Jonah's running, but God's pursuing him. He sends the storm. Jonah knows that he sent the storm because he describes that right there. I'm the reason that this is all happening. He knows that God is trying to grab his attention. In just a little bit, we'll see that the great fish that we all kind of know about in the story of Jonah was sent by God to save Jonah from drowning. God is pursuing Jonah even in the midst of his disobedience. God showed mercy to Jonah in spite of his neglecting the Lord. 
And so the principle that we can take away from this first scene is that we need to run from disobedience. We need to run from disobedience. And I don't know about you, but at times I can be tempted in the same way that Jonah lived. When I see the challenge of God's word that calls me to live differently in the midst of how the world lives, I, I want to go in the opposite direction. That's where my flesh, that's where my sinful nature wants to take me. I mean, take Philippians 2, 3, for example. Do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition, nothing of conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, talk about a hard command. My flesh doesn't want to always think of others. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, what can I do for other people? The first thing I think about is, where's my cup of coffee? What can I do for me to make me feel better? My flesh doesn't naturally think of others. And the temptation that we can have when we go to God's word, when we hear God's word taught, is we can hear the hardness of it, the difficulty of it, and we want to just disobey it because it's difficult. But we need to run from disobedience. Jonah ran from obedience. We need to run from disobedience. And I guess a question that I would have for myself and maybe for you tonight would be is where would that area be in our lives? Where are those areas of disobedience that we know we're kind of skirting around a little bit and kind of avoiding doing what God wants us to do? How do we need to pay attention to that? The second scene in Jonah is in chapter 2 where we see that Jonah prays and God rescues. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, as you probably heard about, you know, we're going to talk about Jonah. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's the fish, right? It's, it's all about the fish. I mean, the story is not all about the fish, but we think about this big fish. Now, I grew up in the church, and I was a church kid growing up my whole life. Uh, Highland Community Church is an evangelical free church. Uh, that's what I grew up in as well. And I can remember just getting a heavy dose of Sunday school flanographs. Now, how many of you know what a flannel graph is? You kind of put your hands up. Okay, about 50%. I'm about to bless all of you, okay? <laughs> what I got for you here is your good old-fashioned flannel graph. This is how I learned the Bible when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, okay? This is what I'm talking about. So my daughter, I have two daughters, Taya and Anya, they're five and two years old. I said, Taya, would you be able to put together the story of Jonah for me? She's like, yeah. So this is Jonah and uh, it looks pretty vicious uh, there, but he's, he's getting eaten by the, the big fish there. So, but this is what's going on. We have, we have the ship with the sailors. They toss them overboard. The waves are crashing and it starts to calm down. The fish comes and gathers Jonah into its belly. Here is Jonah. He is at rock bottom because of his disobedience against God. He's in deep despair. He knows how incredibly resistant he has been to the Lord. And while Jonah is under water, in this housing situation, he prays. He recalls his experience of going down into the water and the waves crashing over him, feeling like his life was about to end. The, the weeds and the seaweeds were wrapping around his body and he gets to this point of just feeling like his life is just fainting away. And although Jonah had a lot of character flaws, one thing he did right is that he prays. He prays. 
He was in need of saving. He was in need of mercy. He was in need of grace. He calls out to the Lord and God was gracious to him because only God could save Jonah. Who else was going to do it? Only God could. There is no other source of salvation. And the same is what we see throughout all of scripture that there's only one who can save. John 14, 6 says of Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only God can save. And he says in verse uh, 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. He prays that rightly. And God mercifully rescues Jonah. Verse 10 Verse 10 says of chapter 2, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited. (laughs) I mean, what's that like, right? He vomited Jonah out onto dry land. I don't know what that looks like, but pew, you know, and he goes over there. We have Jonah rescued, saved by God. And that brings us to a second principle in the second scene of Jonah that we need to remember where salvation belongs. We need to remember where salvation belongs. In our culture today, many people are trying to get out of brokenness, get out of hopelessness, trying to find purpose. They're trying to find freedom in something, in something. But unfortunately, the sources of salvation that people run to are often and always, unless it's Christ, temporary and empty Drunkenness, sex outside of marriage, addiction to drugs, love of money, materialism are incapable. Those things are incapable of giving us any sense of true, eternal salvation and freedom. Prioritizing any of these will ultimately just lead to more hurt, more frustration, and more of just the same downward spiral in our lives. And friends, we need to remember that only salvation belongs to the Lord. And it only comes through faith, trusting in Jesus. And I don't know where each of you are at today, but if you feel like you don't know where that salvation is, if you feel like you don't have that salvation in your own life that is only found in Christ, I would just commend to you today to not leave today before you ask somebody about that, before you come to faith and trust your life to Christ. We need to remember where salvation truly belongs. Let's look at our third scene where we see Jonah preaches and then God shows mercy. He gets spit out into dry land. This is what happens next. Chapter three, verses one to three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Finally, Jonah does what he was supposed to do at the very beginning. We kind of see at least a a glimmer of what it seems to be obedience for Jonah. He gets up, he goes to Nineveh, and he gives them pretty much the shortest sermon ever. And he says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh 
shall be overthrown. That's his message. Not super encouraging. Not usually, not, definitely not what we heard a couple days ago or yesterday at Easter. But that's his message to the Ninevites. Some people actually think that because of Jonah's hatred and just his kind of bitterness against the Ninevites, that he purposefully gave a short message that really didn't give them any sort of hope. To the, and he did that to, in the hopes that they would not actually repent, that they would not actually respond to the message of grace and mercy. But whether Jonah did it out of integrity or, or whether he did not, the point is, look at what happens in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, how incredible is that? These brutal Ninevites that they all of a sudden they believed in God. They responded with repentance and people that Jonah probably never would have imagined in a million years to respond to the Lord do just that. And so we see that God is at work. He's calling people to himself. Jonah 3.10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he has said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God showed the Ninevites grace and mercy. And this brings us to another principle from this part of the story that we can take away from Jonah. It's that we need to practice obedience even when it's hard. We need to practice obedience even when it's hard. Now the last thing that Jonah would have wanted to do was to be obedient to this command from God. It was a hard command for him to grasp. It was a hard command for him to get excited about. And if we're honest, sometimes that can be true of us. When we see what God's word calls us to do, sometimes we can feel like Jonah and be like, I really don't want to do this. We see that it'll take sacrifice. We'll see that it's going to take intentionality. And more than likely, at times, it means doing something that we really don't want to do ourselves. But it makes me think of James chapter 1, verse 22, that says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. See, we're in opposition against God, against Scripture. Every time we hear God's word, we understand what it's saying, and we decide, I'm not going to do that. That's an opposition to how God has called us to live as people following the Lord. We are called to be doers of the word, not just hearers. That's our call. And so we need to practice obedience even when it's hard. Let's go to our next scene, the final scene in chapter 4. And we see this scene I would like to call Jonah gets angry and God gives a challenge. Jonah gets angry and God gives a challenge. Now if you're like me as I'm thinking through this story, I think it would be kind of great if the story ended right there before chapter 4. That would be kind of nice because it would be this kind of perfect, happy ending of a story, right? We have Jonah, he's super disobedient, he's rejecting God, he's 
fallen away from him, but then God kind of rescues him and he goes, he's obedient. And then there's huge revival and, and that's the end of the story, the end. Like that would be a great way to end the book of Jonah, but that's not what happens. The story twists and we see this ending. Look at chapter four, verses one to four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Shouldn't Jonah be happy? Shouldn't he be like the happiest preacher on the face of the earth? That he just preached this like six word sermon and an entire city comes to believe in God. You would think that he would be happy but he's not. Why is he not happy? He is aggressively ticked off that God would actually show mercy to Jonah's enemies. Verse two gives us the answer though of why he's so upset. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the reason why Jonah didn't want to go in the first place. It wasn't necessarily because he was afraid to go to a dangerous people, but he didn't want to see his enemies, the people that were different than him, saved. He didn't want to see them shown mercy. He didn't want to see them Respond to the Lord. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so God's like, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Jonah doesn't answer the question. He stomps off stubbornly. He sits under a little tent that he makes and he's just waiting until he sees, hopefully, that God just destroys Nineveh. He's hoping that they, they revert back into their evil ways and that God was like, never mind, I'm going to destroy them anyways. He's waiting for this. Jonah doesn't respond to God's question. His anger was producing in him deep roots of bitterness towards a people who are not like him. Now, I really enjoy uh, different things in like the Marvel movie universe. I don't know if any of you kind of enjoy those things. I, I like them. I like them. If you think it, I'm an, a nerd for that, like, fine. I'm, I'm good with that. I kind of enjoy them. I like the storylines. I like all of that kind of stuff. What kind of Marvel character would Jonah be if he was in those movies? Which, which character do you think? The, the person I think that he would be like is definitely the Hulk. I, I think Jonah's the Hulk because he's always angry all the time. He's always bitter. He's always got a bad attitude all the time. I think that's the kind of person that he would be in a Marvel Cinematic Universe type thing. 
There's one of the movies where um, the Avengers are kind of doing their thing, fighting bad guys and all this good stuff. There's a big enemy coming, and then Bruce Banner, who is the Hulk, right? And Captain America, he kind of like does his Captain America thing. He says, all right, I, I want you to get angry, Bruce. You need to get, get angry. We need you in the fight. And then, and then Bruce kind of turns to Captain America. And he says, that's my secret. I'm always angry. And then he like turns green, like punches this thing in the face. And it's awesome. And they start destroying everything. And he starts smashing stuff. It's awesome. He's angry. He's angry all the time. Jonah, man, he's just angry all the time. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to hang out with him very much. Jonah just seems like one of those friends you're like, I don't want to really hang out with you. You're always angry all the time. And it's affecting the core, though, of who he is. It's not like a righteous anger. It's like a bitter, despising, hateful anger that is controlling his emotions. And then God gives him a challenge toward the end of the story. God gives Jonah this plant. It provides him shade. Jonah likes that. And then God sends a worm to eat the plant and then it dies. And then Jonah doesn't like that. He wants his life to end. He gets so angry because of this little plant. And then God says in verses 10 and 11, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So here's, here's where God is going with this. Jonah, if you care so much for this fleeting little plant that was here one day and now it's gone, shouldn't I care to save thousands of people. Jonah, you should care too. The question that God is asking is causing Jonah to ask that question to himself. If God would pity, if God would have compassion and mercy on these people, Jonah, shouldn't you? And that question gets turned on us today in the 21st century. Should we care for people who maybe are our enemies who are different than us, should we care enough to show mercy and grace and to share the good news with them? Jonah loved it when God showed him mercy. When God saved him with the big fish, he, he appreciated that. When he got the plant, he appreciated that. But as soon as mercy was shown to other people that weren't like him, that's where Jonah draws the line. Like, no, no, no. Grace and mercy are only for a certain kind of people. And God is challenging Jonah's wrong thinking. God's question to Jonah is a question that we need to wrestle with ourselves. Do we have compassion on others who are maybe in the world's terms our enemies? Do we desire for mercy to be shown to people that are in our lives, that our culture, that are different than us? Or do we want them to just kind of get, get theirs, get their payment? Here's another principle that we can take away from the text. We need to resist rage-filled attitudes toward others. We need to resist rage-filled attitudes toward others. Jonah was blinded by his rage and anger toward the Ninevites. All he wanted was judgment and retribution, no grace. But God's question should have made Jonah question his duplicitous heart. He loves mercy when it's shown to him, but he doesn't when it's shown to others. You don't have to scroll through social media too, too far before you see people 
pitted against each other in, in hatred and in anger. And I think it becomes incredibly hard, if not impossible, when we are blinded by our anger against other people to ever share the gospel with them. We need to release. We need to show grace and mercy. Be truthful, be honest, share God's word, what it says. But at the same time, we need to be loving and merciful. I think of what Matthew 5.44 says. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our culture says, go ahead and cancel whoever you want if they don't agree with you. If they oppose you, leave them on the curbside. But rather, Jesus says the Christ followers should love and you should pray for them. Love them and pray for them. And I have to, I have to ask myself, Dan, and are you doing that? Am I doing that? People that are different than me, am I showing them that kind of mercy and grace? Do I get my emotions out of control and allow anger to kind of point me in whatever direction it wants to point me in? Or do I allow love and prayer and asking people to repent and come to Jesus? What, what defines me? What defines you? We need to resist rage-filled attitudes toward others and be filled with rather the grace and the mercy character that we see in God. Four scenes. Jonah runs, God pursues. Jonah prays, God rescues. Jonah preaches, God shows mercy. Jonah gets really angry, and then God gives him a challenge. To wrap up our time together, I just want to ask three questions. Three questions that hopefully help us to get to thinking about, okay, Lord, like, what do you want me to do with this? How can I be a, not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word? What does this look like? Three questions. Here's the first one. Where are you running away from God's word instead of embracing it in your life? Jonah heard the initial call of God to go, and he didn't. He ran. But what about us? What is God convicting us to do from his word? Maybe there's a sin in your life that God's asking you to repent of and to flee from. Maybe you need to forgive somebody in your life. Maybe you need to be more generous with the resources and the time that God has given you to serve him rather than yourself. Maybe you need to finally share the gospel with that friend that you've been talking to for years, but you just have never brought up Christ. It's never easy to embrace God's word. It's never easy to obey it. But Psalm 119 says that God's word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. When we obey God's word, when we lean into God's word, it actually shows clarity of the path that we should take in our life. And Jesus, it talks about Jesus in 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in Jesus, so if you abide in Jesus, you ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And Jesus knew scripture. He obeyed scripture perfectly. We're supposed to be like Christ. We should be obedient to scripture. That's the first question. Where are you running away from God's word instead of embracing it? Second question, where are you seeking salvation in your life? Jonah rightly said that salvation belongs only to God, only to him. And yet we look for salvation in many other ways, in many other places in our world. And relationships cannot save you. Money can't save you. 
pleasure can't save you. Attending young adults, it, it can't save you. It's good, but it can't save you. And if you would just recognize that the only way to be saved is just by having faith and trust in Jesus of what he did for you on the cross to cover your sins. We just celebrated that at Easter. He rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And if you would just surrender your life to Christ, you would find what true salvation looks like. Embrace Christ tonight. Why are you not yet following Christ if that's you? What's stopping you from doing that? Seek salvation in Jesus. Here's the final question. Who are you avoiding that needs the gospel just as much as you once did? Who are you avoiding that needs the gospel just as much as you once did? I have to admit that probably this question is just as much for me as it is for you because I feel extremely challenged by that same question. Who are the people in your life, who are the people in my life that need Jesus but I'm not doing anything about it? Jonah was trying to avoid the Ninevites, but he was wrong to do so. Is there a neighbor in your life that maybe really annoys you, bothers you maybe, but you need to invite them to church? You invite them to young adults? Maybe is there a classmate that really gets on your nerves or maybe is someone that's just, maybe someone that is uh, not totally, does, doesn't jive with you or whatever the case might be, and you need to share Christ with them. Or maybe there's somebody in your life that literally, literally has the opposite views on all things, but you need to share the gospel with them. Who are those people in your life? If we're not careful, we can become like Jonah and love it when we've received mercy, but then we never dish it out to anybody else. Friends, God has a mission for you. He has a mission for us. Jesus told us that we are called to go out to all nations, not just a certain group of people, but to all nations to teach them about Jesus, to share with them what that looks like, to invite them into our lives, and that Jesus will be with us as we do that. But we're not going to be able to fulfill that mission if we don't first show grace and mercy in the gospel with all people, regardless of if they're the opposite of us. So don't be like Jonah that was filled with anger and bitterness and it just kind of locked him in place. But be filled with mercy, be filled with grace as you share the good news of God with all people. That's the hope. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just an opportunity to be able to gather together, to be able to be in your word Heavenly Father, help us to not um, live exactly like Jonah, but help us to learn from his example and to live boldly to share your good news with all people that we wouldn't put up these blocks or these hurdles in front of us that would stop us from sharing Jesus with other people. Lord, would you help us to be gracious, help us to be merciful, help us to be steadfast in love as Jonah described you as, Lord. Help us to be that kind of people. Our world needs those kinds of people. We need to share truth. We need to share what is right and absolute from your word, but also, Lord, we need to do it with grace. 
and with that mercy. Would you help us to do that? We love you, Father. Pray that you would be with us now as we go to our small groups. Pray for good discussion and that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.